Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve and I am the lead pastor. We are continuing our sermon series called Invitation to More. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and go over to Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chair around you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep that one. We would love for that to be our gift to you. This is the third week of our Invitation to More series. Now, when you came in, you were given a, uh, an Invitation to More booklet. If you came in over the last couple of weeks, if you're new this morning and, and you missed it, um, do me a favor and raise your hand, and um, Aaron will make sure that you get one of these. So raise your hand, and, and uh, Aaron and Joni, if you guys wouldn't mind making sure that whoever raises their hand gets one of these. Thank you. All right, um, this booklet is designed to help you engage the sermon and, um, and review it, okay? So engaging it while we're preaching, and of course, and reviewing it as we move forward. These principles are, are really going to be cumulative. We're going to work from week to week, and so it is helpful. Now, if you missed the last two weeks, don't worry. You can jump online. Thanks, Aaron and Joni, for jumping in. Just wanted to make sure we were covered. Uh, they are online. You can go to trailheadonline.org uh, to get the last two weeks' sermons um, to help you get caught up. And if you're jumping in this week, don't worry. Uh, you're not starting in a bad spot. This is actually a great place to jump in. We're going to be reading Romans chapter 12 this morning. We've been focusing on verses 1 and 2. So read along with me uh, silently as I read out loud, beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, guys, we have spent the last two weeks um, introducing this model of, of grace gratitude, growth, right? It is how the gospel gives us power to, to move into personal growth, to overcome personal um, roadblocks, to actually move into the experience of transformation uh, and being changed and not just rearranging the furniture of our heart, right? It is, it is how we respond to God's invitation to more. And, and it's really simple. It begins with, with God breaking in with a disruptive grace. God loves us in a way that is unexpected and radical. Uh, he does for us what we can't do for ourselves and gives for us what we can't earn for ourselves. And, and that produces within us a, a response of humility, right? Because it humbles us that, a, that God has provided it and that humility awakens us to joy. And, and the language of humility and joy is, is, is gratitude. It awakens our heart to a gratitude to a God who would move toward us with such grace. And, and that experience of gratitude then pushes us into areas of discomfort that we would normally avoid and helps us grow, right? We move from the comfort zone to the growth zone. And, and, and as we move into these areas and, and grow in our maturity, grow in our strength, our, our freedom, our power, it pushes us back into a deeper experience of grace, right? We're pushed back in dependence and, 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 and delighting in the fact that we have a God who loves us even though we are so hard-headed at times and, and it is so difficult for us to grow, and that renewed experience of grace reawakens within us a deeper and more profound experience of gratitude, which propel, propels us into deeper and more profound experiences of growth. This is a dynamic process that never ends. This is the dynamic process that is at the heart of the transformation of the gospel. So today, 
uh, we get to focus on the first G. We've been calling this model internally the three G's. Uh, it's just easier than, um, than saying it all out loud. Um, but we're going to be looking at the first G this morning, the, the G of grace. And grace is a gift that flows to us when justice meets mercy. And so for those of you who are note takers, I'm going to help you out right off the bat and help you fill this in, okay? Uh, so when justice meets mercy, grace flows out. It is, this is, this is the power of the entire process. If we don't start here, there's no process to start. If we don't move here, um, then, then, then uh, there, is, there is no power. Grace is where it begins, and grace is where it ends. It continually cycles. It begins there, and it always cycles back to there, ultimately finding greater and greater uh, beauty in, in being loved by God and responding to that love and being changed by that love. Now, for those of you, again, I know note-takers get a little stressed out. I want to relieve your anxiety. Um, I'm not going to be drawing any more charts, okay? So what that means is that you're free to take notes anywhere on these two pages. Don't freak out. Um, There will be a a point at which I define a couple words toward the end, so maybe leave some space for those word definitions. But other than that, you are free to, to write all over these pages. All right, so in our verses. Uh, Our verses begin with, therefore. Um, In the English, it's not the first word in in the verse, but in the Greek it is. And I was taught years and years ago by by one of my instructors as I was studying the Bible that um, that you always, every time you see the word therefore, you want to ask what it's therefore, right? Yeah, I want to drill that into your head. Because that's actually important, because a therefore connects two key ideas. What he's saying is, I gave you a key idea over here. This is the logical outflow. This is where it goes. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So what is he tying the mercies of God to? What is he pointing us back to? Well, this is um, in, in, in Romans 12, uh, the fourth um, of what I identify as the critical transitions in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is a really, really well-organized essay. It is, it is a masterpiece of, of logic and reasoning, and, and Paul just expounds the beauty of the gospel all the way through. And, and chapter 12 introduces the final section of the letter. It goes from 12 to 16 that really just kind of opens up the implications of the gospel. Basically says, this is how you live it out. This is how you experience it. And the therefore actually ties to all the previous letter, right? Chapters 1 through 11, where he has basically opened up all the different elements and the beauty of the gospel. He's saying, considering everything I've already written, consider the mercies of God. Because everything I've already written helps you explore and understand and be amazed at the mercies of God. Now, obviously, this morning, I I can't go back and teach the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Um, That's not going to happen. But I do want to take you back to the first major transition in the letter. Because it's the foundational transition that sets the stage for the rest of the letter. And that's in chapter 3. So let's go back to Romans chapter 3. And um, that's going to be page 940 for those of you that are using our Bibles. Page 940. We're going to flip back to Romans 3. Now over the last two weeks, we've been looking at why people don't respond to God's invitation to more. Right? In week one, we talked about but the reason that, that a lot of times people don't respond to God's invitation to more is because it seems like an invitation to less, right? Like in our verse where Paul says, uh, I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. 
that doesn't sound like an invitation to more. A lot of people listen to that and they're like, that sounds like an invitation to suffering. I think I've got enough of that in my life, right? I don't need more frustration. I got enough, right? I don't need a diminishing. I need an increasing. And because the invitation to more sounds like an invitation to less, we often don't consider the invitation at all. And we pass on it. We'd rather be comfortable. And we're going to get into this. I'm going to talk to you guys about why that is such a beautiful, that specific one, an invitation to being, offering up your body's living sacrifice, why that is so beautiful. That's not yet. We'll get there. The second week, we looked at one of the other reasons that we pass on God's invitation to more, and, that, and that's because we've become inoculated to the invitation. Many of us have had truncated experiences of the gospel. We've, we've gone to churches or had Christian experiences that have in some way or another misrepresented the beauty of the gospel. And they use all the same language, right? We talked about Jesus, we talked about grace, we talked about holiness, we talked about all these things. And, 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 and one of two things can happen in those, in those experiences. One is, is that we grow immune to the invitation. We don't, we don't leave the church, but we grow immune to the invitation. We stop expecting more. We think this must be all there is. This is the Christian life. It's just kind of muddling along and trying to do the right thing and, 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 and kind of just fighting your way through and trying to be obedient. The other option is some people look around and they say, you know what, these people, what they're talking about is so much bigger and so much more beautiful than what they're actually living. They're a bunch of hypocrites. So they walk away from the church. The sad result is that both groups can become inoculated to the power of the gospel. They've had a small taste of a truncated gospel so that when the true gospel comes and gives them an invitation to more, all they hear is what they've already heard. They just filter it through their previous experiences and they write it off. Oh, I know all about Jesus. I know all about the gospel. I know all about that Christianity stuff. I've seen it. It's just a bunch of hypocrisy. They become inoculated to the power of the gospel. This is an incredible tragedy. There's a third reason, though, that, that we often pass on the invitation to the gospel. There is a, a reason that, um, that we have such a hard time seeing it for what it is and hearing it for what it is. And I want to be clear about what it is. The gospel is an invitation to life itself. It is an invitation to experience the outworking of Jesus in your life now. It is an invitation to increased life and joy and dignity and freedom and power. Like you can't generate on your own, like you are not currently experiencing in your life. And the reason we can't see it for what it is, is because we're looking at it from the wrong angle. We have a filter called worldliness. Now, worldliness is this idea we've been talking about it over the last couple of weeks. Worldliness is the way we do life without God. It's the systems we create to try to find from life what only God can give. So we're looking for purpose and significance. We're looking for pleasure and joy. We're, we're looking for meaning or security. And we look to the things God created instead of the Creator to fill those giant gaps in our heart. Worldliness. It's our way of trying to do life without God, the source of life. And the reason we do that, let's be honest, the reason we do that is we resent God. We don't want to center our lives on God. 
We don't want to live for His glory. We, we don't want to live under His authority. We want to build our kingdoms. We, we want to establish our glory. We want to, we want to build our own security. We, we, want to, we want to provide for ourselves. We want to be like God. So we try to act like God. <laughs> the problem is we're not very good at it. All right, we've got these really, really deep, profound needs that were designed to be met by an infinite God, and we're trying to satisfy those needs with temporal success or temporal fame or temporal pleasure or temporal provision or temporal security. And as a result, we continually are disappointed. And we are driven by that disappointment to try to get more. So whatever we have, we think, man, if I could just get a little more. If I can get a little more approval, a little more fame, a little more comfort, a little more money, a little more security, if I could just get a little more, and then whatever you get, it's not enough. Because whatever you get is not what you have, and whatever you have needs a little more. Because you have infinite needs designed to be met by an infinite God. They cannot be met through temporal means. We're trying to do life without God, the source of life, and meet the needs of life with things that simply can't do it. And as a result, when you peel back the layers of our hearts, you're going to find layers of disappointment, layers of anxiety, layers of frustration, layers of anger. If you were to peel it back all the way down to the core of our hearts, I would guess that in many of our hearts, in most of our hearts, I would say actually in all of our hearts, you're going to find anger at God. We are angry at God. Because we feel like life is a bait and switch. We feel like we have desires, and those desires deserve to be fulfilled, and we are angry because they're not. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much success, no matter how much pleasure, no matter how much indulgence, no matter how much fame, no matter how much security, it's never enough. And we feel betrayed because we feel like God is just being stubborn. Why won't he just give me what I want? He is is either blocking my way or stubbornly refusing to provide. And so I get angry. God. The problem is that we're trying to get God's blessing apart from God. We, we want God to be a friend with benefits, right? Give me what I want without the weight of commitment and responsibility. Give me what I want without relationship. And He won't because He can't. His blessings are wrapped up in His nature. He cannot give us His goodness without also giving us himself, all of himself, his love, his grace, his beauty, and his righteousness and holiness and justice. So we resent God. That's, that's our perspective, right? But there's another perspective, as there always is in any relationship. There are two ways of viewing a relationship. And, and um, While we only see ours, there is another side, and that is God's. And we shouldn't be surprised that God would, in fact, have a a perspective on this relationship because He is a person, (laughs) right? We don't think of Him that way often, but 
The reason we are people, we are created in His image, is because He's a person. We feel things. We, we long for things. We grapple with things. Why? Because God is a person. And, and as a result, in this relationship, He has an experience as well. And here's the thing. We would never know God's experience unless He was humble enough to reveal it to us. But He actually does. In chapter 3, starting in verse 10, Paul accumulates a bunch of Old Testament texts that communicate to us, that share with us God's perspective of our relationship with Him as those who are trying to do life apart from Him, trying to get from life what only God can give by turning to the things that God created instead of God Himself, right? So I'm going to read through this with a little bit of commentary, starting in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. All right, pause for a second. Everybody in this room has an area of righteousness. Now, I know that's kind of a religious word. We don't often think about it that way. But, but there is something about you that you think makes you right. There is something about you that you think justifies your existence, makes you good. Probably something that makes you better than others. And your area of rightness or area of righteousness is going to be different from others. For some people, it is their moral accomplishment and religious behavior. I am highly disciplined. I get up at 5 a.m., right? There was a person who used to boast, I get more done before 5 a.m. than you get done all day. And I'm like, good for you. I like sleep, right? But, but that, was, that was her area of rightness. I mean, for you, it, it, it doesn't have to be religious, right? It might be your recycling, right? Every time you wheel your recycling cart out to the curb, you're looking around, who else is, oh, you slackers. I am a, I'm the best recycler on my block, right? For you, it might be your, your Prius. You're mocking the people driving their SUVs as they're mocking you. I save so much gas, you guys are destroying the planet, right? I don't know what your area of righteousness is. Everybody has an area of righteousness. Here's the thing. It's only righteous as we compare it to other people's weakness. We kind of resent people that are better at the things we do well because they remind us that we're not actually righteous. I will tell you this, you have a law in your own head. You don't even keep your own law. There are rules that you have that you want, you know, like this is what it means to be a good person. This is what it means to, to, you break your own rules. God is saying, I see you for what you are. I see your righteousness is not righteous. I don't compare you to others. I see you. There is none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Why? Because we're all drunk with this idea that we can do life without God, as if we could do life without the source of life. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Why? Because we're seeking for life outside of God. We're continually turning to things that aren't God. All have turned aside. Aside from what? Aside from the purpose of our creation. We were created in the image of God to glorify God, to live in the overflow of the goodness of God, to flourish in the presence of God. We've all turned aside from the purpose of our creation. Together they have become worthless. Worthless to do what? To do what we were actually created to do. No one does good. Not even one. Wait a minute, Steve. I know I've done good things. I'm not saying you haven't done good things. But if we were really to get to the root of it, let's ask the question of why you did the good things. Did you do the good thing because you like to think of yourself as somebody who does good things? Did you do the good because you, it reinforced an image of you as somebody who does good? Or was it purely motivated by complete selfless love? I doubt it. 
Nobody does good. He sees the motivations underneath the behaviors. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their throat is an open grave. That is a graphic image. In the Middle East, you did not want an open grave. That was an unpleasant experience. That's what God says he experiences when we open our mouths and we express our hearts. Why? What are we expressing? We're expressing our best intentions about how to do life without God. You know, our best advice to others. Hey, man, this is how you can help yourself. Here's your self-improvement project. Here's how you can be happy. Here's how you can be successful. And they're all advice about how to get life without the source of life. God's like, I smell the stench of your self-deception. You are using your tongues to deceive, and the venom of asps is under your lips. You're poisoning people with your best intentions. Your best life coaching, your best self-improvement projects are poison because you're actually trying to help people thrive in life apart from the source of life. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. Ah, Steve, come on, man. I've I've never been in a fight in my life. I've never shed anybody's blood. Yeah, well, let me see your Facebook page. You ever post something purely for the joy of knowing it's going to hurt somebody? You ever repost something because you're like, ooh, that's a nice dig. Man, come on, guys. We love to see certain people suffer. We love to rejoice in the suffering of people we think deserve it. Our feet are quick to shed blood in our paths or ruin and misery. Just look at the history of humankind. Our best efforts are always built with the seeds of our own destruction already sown in. Everything we do in the end falls apart in pain and suffering and destruction. Why? Because we're building things to find life without the source of life. The way of peace they have not known, the way of shalom, the way of flourishing, the way of the fullness of life they haven't known. They they keep trying to find it, but they haven't known it because they've forsaken it. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no respect of God, the Creator, God, the all-magnificent, beautiful One, God, the source of life. There's no respect for God because there's no room for respect for God because we respect ourselves too much. That's God's perspective, you guys. That's not very complimentary. This is what God sees when he looks at us. It is a creator looking at his creation, and it is self-ruined. A father looking at his children, and they have lied about him in their own hearts, and they misrepresented him to others, and they have rejected him as a result. We attack him, and we hurt each other. That's what God sees. He goes on in verses 19 and 20. He says, Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All right, in in these two verses, he is speaking straight to his, his Jewish readers. So the Jews were were God's covenant people, right? We read through the Old Testament. uh, The Jews were the ones that received the covenants of promise, right? The the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. And and, and they they received the the covenants of law, the Mosaic covenant, right? They were the ones that had this unique relationship with God where they obeyed the law. And and when they didn't obey, they had the sacrificial system. And and they had this unique relationship with God. and, And the law influenced 
everything in their lives, from what they wore to to what they ate to how they structured their time. The law uh, influenced all of it, and they lived under it. And they were proud of it because they worked hard to obey it. And as a result, they would look out at the rest of the world and they would say, we are not like them. We're not like the Gentiles, the, the uncircumcised heathen, the, the, the people that are false worshipers, the ones that are part of those pagan... Pra- We're not like them. And Paul is looking at them and saying, you are just like them. That law that you hold so dearly, all those quotes that I just quoted, they speak to you, the people that are under the law just as much as to those who are outside of it. You are condemned by the very law you claim to keep. And he goes on and he says this crazy thing. He says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. You guys, God didn't give the law, right? The Ten Commandments, you know the Ten Commandments? The law isn't just the Ten Commandments. It's it's all the books and laws around the Ten Commandments. In fact, the Jews would have thought of the entire Old Testament as the law. Right? Old Testament means Old Covenant. Old Covenant is another way of referring to, to the law, the Mosaic Covenant. Right? And so the entire Old Testament was the law. And, and, and God didn't give the law to make you better. Right? He's saying to the Jews, obeying rules won't fix your problem. Which means for us as religious people today, getting more moral will not make you more holy. Let's say that again. You don't hear that in church very often. Getting more moral will not make you more holy. The law was not given to make you better than you are, but to show you that you are worse than you thought. Paul goes on and says, Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The gift of the law isn't self-improvement. It's self-knowledge. We are all in a cesspool of worldliness, doing life without the source of life, trying to get the gifts of God apart from the presence of God. We're all in the cesspool of worldliness, of self-focus, self-glory, promoting our pride and hiding our shame, and we forget that it's a cesspool. When I moved to Iowa um, right out of high school and was going to college there uh, from California, um, one of the first things I noticed about Iowa was the smell. Um, there are many pig farms in Iowa, uh, at least in the area that I was in, and, and it stank. Um, the people who worked in the pig farms, uh, we had a few on my floor, they would stick their shoes in the hallway because it stunk so much in their room. The whole hallway, pretty, it just, I was like overwhelmed everywhere I went. But here's the thing, after I was there for a little while, you stop smelling it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just Iowa. It's just air. You stop smelling it, right? And then you go home for Thanksgiving and you unpack your bags and your mom's like, oh, why do you smell? I'm like, what do we? Oh, I stink, right? We forget. We stop smelling the stench of our own sin. We stop smelling the stench of the cesspool of worldliness. You guys, God gave us the law so we could smell our sin. God gave us the law so that we could see clearly where our eyes had become 
clouded. C.S. Lewis once said, no one knows how truly bad they are until they try very, very hard to be good. God gave us the law to crush our pride, not to equip our success. Right? Every time you see the Ten Commandments hung in a public place, hey, that's great. But just remember, the law wasn't given to make us better. It was given to crush our pride and any hope we have of building our own righteousness and our own kingdom. The problem was the Jewish people, instead of letting the law awaken their humility, distorted it in their pride. So what they did is they ended up walking to a different area of the cesspool, right? They couldn't get out of it because they were unable to do that, but they walked to a different area of the cesspool and, and they start using their good works to scrub themselves with raw sewage. But they're still in the cesspool. And they start condemning the people on the other side of the pool. Looking down on them. Judging them. Condemning them. You should be more like us. You should behave like us. Act like us. Think like us. Do like us. You should be over here on this side because this is where the good people hang out. And Paul is saying, you're still in the pool. And if you stop pridefully comparing your strengths to other people's weaknesses, if you actually look at the law and let the law do what it was designed to do, like a true mirror showing you reality, it will lead you to despair of any hope in yourself. It will show you that your best efforts are inadequate to fix yourself. Paul goes on and says that the law was given that every mouth might be stopped. Stopped from what? Stopped from boasting, right? And saying the truly stupid things like, I am a self-made man. Or, why can't they be more like me? If they were just more like me, then... Or, I've done good. I've worked hard. And God owes me. God owes me. See, Paul says that God did all of this that the world may be held accountable. Now, here's the part we really don't like. You guys, we were created with a purpose. And we are accountable to the God who created us because we fail to live out that purpose. We are created in the image of God designed to revolve around God, center ourselves on the glory of God, submit ourselves to the authority of God, be an amplification of the goodness and the beauty of God in our productivity, in our activity, and in in our culture-making and all of it. The problem is we revolve around ourselves, and we amplify the sin of our self-obsession, and we are accountable. We are accountable to to a holy, all-pure, just God. And as the just judge, he must judge justly, and he must judge injustice. He is a fire of purity, and by his very nature, he must consume anything that's impure. When impurity enters the presence of God, the fire of his purity will consume it. 
Hebrews 10.31 tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's not saying we should be afraid of the living God. It's saying it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You guys think about this. To fall into the hands of a living God, to come before God, is to be completely exposed. All of your self-deceptions will evaporate. All of the lies you tell others, all of your image is gone. Everything that you put forward as your best effort to try to hide who you really, it's all gone. You are completely exposed. Every motivation, every action, every imagination of your heart is exposed before God. You are exactly who you are not who you pretend to be. And you are in that moment completely vulnerable. Because in being exposed, you discover you are helpless. Because you are in the hands of your Creator. You are in the the presence of power itself. The one who created all things and holds all things together. You are exposed. You are vulnerable. You are helpless. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of a living God. Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. Now, obviously, this is a metaphor. God's not actually a ball of flame, but, but in His purity, in His holiness, in His character, He is like a consuming fire. And this is both a beautiful and a terrifying metaphor because fire does one of two things. It will either purify something or it will destroy something. It all depends on what's put into the fire. You guys, if I fall into those hands, if I enter that presence and I am completely false, all of my deceptions are gone, all of my pretending is gone, I am completely exposed. And in that place, there is no true righteousness in me. And if the dross in that space will be completely burned away, what would be left? What would happen to me? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If I am unjust, even in my best works, If my best things are motivated by sinful intent, what hope do I have before the consuming fire of God's purity and love and perfection and beauty and holiness? Are you tasting the fear? Are you recoiling at the helplessness? Because if you are, you're ready for the next two words. But God. It is one of the most beautiful transitions in all of Scripture. But God. The whole world is accountable to God and helpless to fix themselves and and helpless in the presence of the consuming fire of a beautiful, pure, and holy God. They cannot clean themselves. They cannot protect themselves. But God. God. Let's take a look at verses 21 through 26. I'm going to read these through without comment and then come back and just focus on a few key things. Starting in verse 21. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over the former sins. It was to show His righteousness at this present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, I, I'm fairly confident we can spend at least six months in this passage alone. We're not going to do that uh, this morning. I, I want to summarize a few key points, you guys. The law makes us aware of our need, right? When God gave the law, it wasn't God rubbing our noses in our failure. It wasn't God mocking us in our weakness. It was a gift to prepare our hearts for grace, to show us our need, to wake us up from our self-deception so that when the gift came, we wouldn't despise it. If God gives you a Savior and you have no need of Him, you will despise Him. If God gives you the gift of His righteousness, the most valuable, splendid gift in the entire universe, if you don't think you'll need it, you'll despise it. God gave the gift of the law to prepare our hearts for the greater gift so that when He gave us the gift of His Son, we would say, yes, 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 I need this. I need a gift of righteousness. Not the ability to fix myself and make myself a little bit better. Not not the gift of self-improvement. Not the gift of establishing my own righteousness. I need the gift of an alien righteousness. A righteousness not my own. In fact, if I'm going to come into the presence of God Himself, the all-consuming, pure, holy God of the universe, I need the very righteousness of God. And that's exactly what He gives us. The very righteousness of God. A gift of grace that flows from the justice of God meeting the mercy of God. And we receive it by faith. Faith. Faith is a response to grace. So I want to be clear on this because I think sometimes we misunderstand faith. There are there are people out there that will teach that, that if you just have enough faith, you can get things done. If you just have enough faith, you can make God do things. If you just have enough faith, as if faith were something you did. As if faith were a work that you produced. As if faith was something you generated in yourself. You could talk yourself into more faith, decide to have more faith, you know, kind of gear yourself up for more faith. You guys, that's worldliness. Huh. That's self-effort. That's self-improvement. That's putting the, the, the result of, of, of God's work back on my ability to take hold of it. Faith isn't something I do. Faith is not a commitment I make. Faith is a response to truth. God initiates by sharing with me who He is and what He's done and then invites me to respond in trust. He says, this is who I am. See me. This is what I've done. 
trust me. Faith isn't a work we produce, it's a response to the work He's done. Faith isn't our commitment to God. Faith is our responding to God's commitment to us and saying, I trust you. So how did God make this gift available? How did God make the gift of grace available? How can a holy, infinite, pure God make the gift of His own righteousness available to those who are not righteous? How can He, as it says in verse 26, be both just and the justifier of the ungodly? How can God do that and preserve His own nature of holiness and justice? Well, there's two words I want us to focus on in verses 24 and 25 that will unpack this. In verse 24, it says, We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption, that's the first word, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that's the second word, by His blood, to be received by faith. Redemption and propitiation. Redemption. Redemption means to buy back. That's what it means. In the original context of of the ancient Roman world, of the Greek in which this was uh, referenced, it was a reference to the slave market. In the ancient world, people would fall into debt and would often go into a period of slavery to pay that debt off. Now, ancient slavery was most of the time very different than American slavery. The American experience of slavery was, was radically dehumanizing because the slave owners had complete and total control over people they didn't even consider human which gave them the ability to completely dehumanize them. In the ancient world, a slave owner owned the productivity of their slave. And so if you fell into debt to somebody, you would be brought in as to be a slave to them until you worked off your debt. They owned your productivity during that period of time. And you could be redeemed by that if somebody came in and paid off your debt. If somebody came and paid off the debt, you could be set free from your debt of slavery. So today, it might be like a prison term. See, when a criminal disrupts society today, the way we've structured it, the way we understand it, is they owe society a debt. So if you commit a crime, you you owe time, right? He owes society a debt, and, and so he is imprisoned to work off that debt. Now, some of you are like, Steve, that's a horrible illustration. That doesn't work for me because the American uh, justice system is just broken, right? I mean, it's like it's corrupt. The biggest criminals in our culture aren't even seen as criminals because they can afford the highest paid lawyers and they can find all the loopholes in the law and they, and they can do all these bad things while the people that are most vulnerable and in most poverty, they're the ones who, who get incarcerated the most for the lowest fence and, and, and get incarcerated for the longest period of time. And I would say you're absolutely right. Think about how unjust it would be if God also were an unjust judge. A judge who released the sins of some people he liked and held other people to account because he didn't. I like where you're from. I like how you look. I like what you've done. I don't like you. So I'm going to let you off and and I'm going to kind of set you, right? That would be unjust. A follow-up question you may be asking is, yeah, but Steve, why doesn't he just let them all off. Why does he have to judge at all? Let me ask you, is that really what you would want? A judge who releases both the oppressed and the oppressor? A judge who sees both the victimizer and the victim as equal? A judge who defends no one? 
If we had a judge like that here in Madison County, just let everybody go. I want to get before judge so-and-so because he just lets everybody go. Would you vote for him to retain his seat? You know why? Because we crave justice. God is a just judge. It is his nature. It's not just a choice he makes. It is who he is. He must act justly. His purity must consume impurity. It is the nature of who he is. He cannot not be just any more than he cannot be loving. But here's the thing. Jesus became our redemption. Jesus became our redemption. He paid the price we couldn't pay. He took the guilt of our crime, our crime of cosmic treason. <laughs> it's a pretty significant crime. Cosmic treason against the creator of the universe. Blasphemy against God. Libel in the highest degree. Thieving, right? Trying to steal the gifts of God from the creator God and say we're going to use these. We are guilty of every crime. And Jesus on the cross took the criminal's place. He took my place. And in becoming our redemption, he worked out our propitiation with God. Propitiation is a word that means satisfaction. It's a word that we don't use a lot outside of religious circles today, but it's a beautiful word. It, it means that the demands have been satisfied. And so if you in the ancient world were to redeem a slave and, 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 and the person who owed the debt received the payment, he would say he was propitiated. He was satisfied and would, would release uh, the person who was indebted to him. God has been propitiated by the sacrifice of Jesus. God, the consuming fire, the holy creator of all things, the infinitely pure, infinitely beautiful, terrifyingly pure. He's satisfied that the demands of justice have been met. God's justice was satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus, my substitute, in mercy. See, mercy is God not giving me what I deserve. But the economy of God works this way. God never just gives me mercy. He justly punishes his son. He takes my place in judgment so I can stand in his place of righteousness. My mercy comes at his cost. Justice meets mercy on the cross, and what bleeds out is grace. Mercy, us not receiving what we deserve. Mercy, us receiving what, what we couldn't earn. God actually gives us the very righteousness of God. Now, there's a hidden beauty in this word, um, propitiation. It's used in the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, that most of the Jews would have been reading during the time of Christ. And, and, and it's used to describe the top of the, of the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Now some of you are like, oh, I know all about the Ark of the Covenant. I, I've seen, you know, the movies. Right? You open it up and your face melts off. No, no. Um, the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was the holiest um, place 
in the entire nation. There was a courtyard where people would come and offer sacrifices, and then there was a temple, and inside the temple there was an outer room called the Holy Place. In the holy place, only the Levitical priests could go there. It was so holy. Only the Levitical priests. And they would go in daily to take care of the table of showbread and, and, the, and the table of incense and, and to take care of those things. And then there was an inner room called the Holy of Holies. And it was so holy that only the high priest could go there. And he could only go there once a year. And when he went in, he went in with a rope around his ankle and bells along the hem of his garment. Because if he died, <laughs> if God just was like, all right, you're done, you're dead. Or if he had a cardiac arrest or whatever. They couldn't go in to get him because nobody could go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest and him only once a year and with the offering of, of the atonement sacrifice. And when he was in there, he would sprinkle the blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a representation of the holiness of God. And that seat, that top of the Ark of the Covenant where the blood was sprinkled was called the mercy seat, the propitiation seat. That's what that word means, mercy seat. It was the place where God's justice met God's people's sin and mercy and grace flowed out. It was a foreshadowing of the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is the true mercy seat. The cross of Christ is the place where God's justice is satisfied in the outpouring of of His justice on His Son in our place out of the motivation of mercy so that we might receive the outpouring grace. Paul, when he was talking to the Corinthians, put it this way. He said, he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. We do not understand how repugnant the cesspool of our sin is. In the same way, we don't understand how delightful and beautiful the presence of God is because our senses are so warped. Jesus is one. He who knew no sin became the embodiment of our offense against God. That's love. Because the only thing that motivated him to do it was so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He suffered in a way we will never understand. When he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't just quoting the Old Testament. This was the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Crying out in the suffering of being the embodiment of our sin and walking into the flame of God's perfect presence in our place. We don't know how to esteem that kind of love. We don't know how to understand it. We don't know how to comprehend it. It's so unlike our love. We love what we find lovable. We love what provokes us to love. And even then, our love is a form of self-interest because loving you makes me feel good about me. This is the eternal, perfect picture of selfless love. God loved us when we were unlovable. He acted for us when we were acting against Him. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, even when we were fighting against Him to do it. We're the ones that put Him on the cross. 
That's love. Like we will never understand outside of our experience of the gospel. That is grace, dignifying, freeing, loving grace. Listen to me. God loves you. You. Jesus died for you. He wasn't on the cross for humanity. He was on the cross for you. He had you in his mind. He had your sins bleeding out of his back. He had your failure, your shame, your cowardice, your fear, your insecurity. He was the embodiment of your sin. And he died that it might die with him. That your debt might be paid and you might be set free. In mercy, God removes all of our sin. And in grace, he then covers us with all of his dignity. Child of God, don't walk around as if God has just forgiven your sin, but he's still waiting to find out if he likes you. He's covered you with his very righteousness. You are covered in Christ. There is no love God has for Christ that he does not have for you. You delight his soul. Even when you fail. Because you can't do anything but fail. That's why he does what he does. Not so you can fix yourself. Not so you can improve yourself. But that you'll abandon your efforts of self-improvement. You will walk away from your self-salvation projects. And you will once again just depend on the source of life for life. You will once again just delight in the love of God and learn to love him in response. You will once again discover the strength of humility and the power of dependence and the freedom of obedience. This is grace. And this is the engine that drives all transformation. God gives his grace to us as a gift and then says, will you respond? Will you trust? Will you believe? Because I've got so much more for you. I've got so much more for you. You've been given everything in Christ. You are not experiencing much of what you've been given. There is an invitation to more. There is an invitation to more. Guys, I'm going to wrap us up there. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. We're going to move into a time of reflection. And then we're going to share communion, but we'll do that in a moment after I introduce it. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the incredible gift of your son. How inadequate those words seem. Lord, I confess in my own heart how often I just stop valuing what you've given. I stop being amazed by this grace. I stop being undone by this love. I, I grow cold. I start becoming obsessed with my own glory or my own obedience or beaten down by my own failure and my own shame. Lord, will you once again reignite my vision, our vision for the beauty of the work of Christ? Would you awaken our hearts to respond to that kind of love? 
Would you teach us, Lord, to hate our sin? Because it robs you of glory and it blocks us from your presence. Will you teach us just to hate our sin and crave your presence? That we will reject our systems of worldliness, the ways that we're trying to get life outside of you, that, that we will see, just be able to see clearly how radical, how powerful, how freeing, how joyful your love is. That the kingdom coming is the kingdom we want. That is the citizenship we want to claim. That is the freedom we want to walk in. That we will be those who are undone by your love and remade to walk in freedom. Just amaze us again this morning with your grace, Lord. We don't even have the ability to do that on our own. We don't even have the ability to to be amazed at your love and to respond to your love. We need you to reawaken our hearts in humility to the incredible gift that you provided to us. Will you do that for us this morning? I pray that you'll meet my friends that are being beaten up in their shame and in their failure, that, that Lord, your, your, your love will pierce through the condemnation, that they will hear the invitation to leave the condemnation at the foot of the cross and to walk in the joyful freedom of being loved. I pray for my friends that, that, that are struggling with pride, because they really do think they have it all together. They think they're, they're, they're good enough. They, they, they think their righteousness, man, Lord, will you give them a glimpse? Just a glimpse? Man, don't crush them, but give them a glimpse of just how weak their little righteousness is, how flawed their performance is, how, how man, just give them, a, give them a whiff of the stench that they might be awakened again to the desperation of need. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.